0: What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Zach Mayo, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, former classmate, Dr. Eric Horrocks. Eric is a doctor of physical therapy who graduated with me from Thomas Jefferson University this past May. Eric has a deep passion for weightlifting and all things related to strength and conditioning. I'm very excited to have him on the show, talk about why it's important to practice what we preach as physical therapists and rehab professionals. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three. Um, Today I'm joined by my very good friend, Dr. Eric Horrocks. Eric is a doctor of physical therapy and we were actually classmates at Thomas Jefferson University and he graduated with me this past May. Um, So before we get into our discussion today, just want to let Eric introduce himself, talk a little bit about his background and what he's passionate about.
1: Hey Zach, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. So Pretty much kind of how I got into physical therapy, starting off as a young kid, young boy loved to play sports, loved to play ice hockey, loved to play football, baseball, everything like that. Well, eventually that turned into like into lift weights more than actually play the sports. And then (laughs) you start to get those gains and it carries over to the sports and you get better at the sports and then you kind of give up on the sports and continue lifting. So yeah, from there I always wanted to do some kind of strength and conditioning or some kind of competition there was bodybuilding powerlifting something like that and just this past october i competed in my first powerlifting competition so planning to do more hopefully once this virus is over
0: mm. nice man i i did see that on your i believe it was your instagram yeah so i did what like a 600 pound deadlift or something
1: 617 it was 617 a little bit more than i was even expecting myself but yeah it was good i mean it, i think the hardest part of the powerlifting competition is you have a lot of people on the outside looking in and you get stubborn about yourself and your own training mm-hmm. and for me it was kind of it was crazy to actually train for a competition because always in your life you're just like um you know i know what i'm doing best here i know how to lift for this and when you actually have to sit back and control the volume, control your progressions and monitor your rest and everything like that. Everything completely changes and it actually changed for the better for me. So I wouldn't have been able to do that in the competition unless I had taken the advice of other people who helped me figure that out.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's very much a different experience compared to just going in and having a regular lifting routine at the gym like most people do. There's a lot of other factors that you have to have to optimize that. Because I mean, when it comes down to those powerlifting means essentially, you know, you're doing your deadlift, squat, bench, and that's what you're judged on. It's not necessarily um, other aspects.
1: Right. And that kind of, talk, that that's more, that's important, not only for powerlifting world, but just the competition world in general, whether you're a combat athlete, whether you're a runner, whether you're even competing in footballs, anything like that. I mean, it's really kind of all about you don't get better by playing games. You get better practicing and honing in on the skills. And a lot of times we don't like to be told what we're bad at, but that's exactly what we need.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, me and you have already talked about this before we started this podcast, but I decided to do this episode on essentially learning or practicing what we preach as physical therapists and as rehab professionals in terms of actually getting into fitness and getting into the gym, whatever that may be to somebody. Um, and what kind of spurred this on was a uh, post that I actually saw on social media by uh, Jill Cook. And anybody who doesn't know who Jill Cook is, she's a world renowned physiotherapist and researcher who specializes in tendinopathy research. And any paper with tendinopathy in it, she's probably one of the authors, or one of her team members is in there. Um, and her post, I'll read it. Well, I'll I will read it real quick. Um, she says, you know, that we do chronically underload musculoskeletal conditions for several reasons. Physios often do not understand strength and conditioning principles, are unclear about the load that exercises place on structures, and for me, so this is Jill saying this the key thing is that they have never been in a gym themselves. So I thought this would be a good way to kind of have a discussion with, you know, somebody like Eric who's very passionate about being in the gym and keeping up his personal fitness and has had a love for this in that it's so important that we as physical therapists, not only have knowledge of this, but we practice what we preach because there's just so many benefits that come from it. Um, So Eric, what are your thoughts on, essentially kind of the benefits or even if there's downfalls i honestly can't think of any downfalls right now of practicing what we preach as physical therapists and being active and being in the gym and just being physically fit individuals
1: yeah so the first point i really wanted to bring up is one of the biggest things i didn't realize and i think a lot of other people didn't realize is coming into pt school and getting your doctorate is a little bit, or I guess more so, a lot different than what a lot of other people are getting in their degree, in the sense of your battle is really kind of just beginning, because it's really one of the only professions that you can think of that you now need to convince every single patient why they need to come see you. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're an MD or if you're a family practicing physician or something like that. I mean, society has already dictated why you need to be seen. You practice medicine. You're going to give somebody a pill to help them feel better. You're going to provide some kind of education on why they're having some kind of issue or who they can see to cut out their body part and put a new one in so that they can feel better. But as a PT, our battle is really just starting because you're going to see people that come through the door. And the first thing they're going to think is, why should I be here? What, yeah. what makes, what makes you so valuable to me and can help me understand and get better. And as a PT, I mean, whether you like it or not, whether you support it or not, we are in that battle where we have to continue to sell ourselves and we have to be salesmen for our own services and salesmen for why people should be choosing us as someone that can take care of their bodies and help them with these musculoskeletal issues. And kind of building off of that, everyone has this internal bias or this understanding of like, okay, so I'm in here. Why do I trust this person? What do they bring to the table? And if you, I mean, there's a saying, a metaphor. I live a lot of my life through metaphors, but (laughs) you never trust a skinny chef. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of the thought process is you can tell someone, you know, you're having knee pain because you have been neglecting this issue. You haven't really been improving your strength in your knee and you've put this off for so long that now your joint is compromised or whatever you want to talk to someone about. But there's always going to be that internal belief of the person that it's like, does this person really, do they know what they're talking about? Is exercise actually going to help me? And Mm -hmm. at that point, whether this, I mean, you have two types of reasoning, you have deductive and inductive reasoning. And we as researchers, we rely on our inductive reasoning and what the research says and all of that. But a lot of normal people, I think. Think about that deductive reasoning, knowledge through experience. How does this person arrived at this conclusion? And when you can bring your own beliefs and your own thoughts from training and being in the gym and saying, look, I can, this, this person can squat 500 pounds. And I know your doctor told you that squatting is bad for your knees. Well, why do they have two functioning good knees that are letting them do that? Mm-hmm. And just kind of bringing something to the table like that is really going to help your rapport with patients and add value to your outcomes.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything you said, and I guess basing off of somewhat of a analogy is, you know, when we talk about the world of sports rehabilitation, right? You want somebody, you want a therapist, you want whoever is treating you, whether it be athletic trainer, physical therapist, whatnot, that actually knows the sport, actually knows the prerequisites of the sport, right? Now, but in saying this, you do not need to be a, an elite athlete as a physical therapist to treat athletes. Or to treat any specific task or activity however you should know what a baseball player does you should know what an ice hockey player has to do and that's no different when we talk about the very basics of physical therapy and really exercise training when it comes to strength training like you should know what a squat should look like you should know modifications for a hip hinge you should know the basic human movements and how to modify that and how to progress it And unfortunately that is not something that is focused on in PT school um, right. at all, which is, you know, a little bit backwards, considering that we're essentially support. We're essentially viewed as movement specialists um, among other things. Um, so one of the biggest things that we, that should be focused on in PT school is learning how to move, learning how to assess movement. And we do learn how to assess some movement. Um, but in terms of, you know, just basic fundamental movement patterns, like a squat, a lunge, a hip hinge, pressing, pulling movements, carrying movements, you know, there's not a lot of education on that aspect from at least PT programs that I know of. I know that there are PT programs where their therapeutic exercise class is actually, their labs are, we're going to a gym and we're learning how to do a deadlift squat clean and bench press. And that's like, that's their class, um, which I think is fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I know of a few universities that do that. And I think we need to get more into the habit of, at least from like a physical therapy standpoint of starting from that educational system. You know, we need to really introduce these concepts of learning how to move correctly as physical therapists so that we can actually relate to patients and we can teach patients and we can instruct and give cues and things of that nature. Because there's a huge assumption that I think takes place in a lot of physical therapy schools of the majority of this class are active individuals. They go to the gym. They know all of this, you know, all the gym things that they can do. So they'll just use that. And that's not the case for a lot of people. We have a lot of people. Yeah.
1: And I think a lot of kind of what we learn in school in our intervention, and I mean, this, this doesn't go for absolutely every single uh, program or whatever, but a lot of kind of what you focus on is this idea. And I struggled with this a little bit in my first clinical affiliations and still struggle with this a little bit of this idea of what can you do with a patient versus what should you do with the patient? Mm -hmm. And I think as PTs, we kind of, we, we, cloud ourselves and, and surround ourselves in all of these great things that we can do with a patient. I mean, if I took a hundred different patients in a room, how many of them do you think I could stretch their hamstrings because they're tight? But should I do that with some patients? I mean, we've kind of that's that's really where the literature and where using evidence is, I in my opinion, most important of understanding you can do that, but should you do that? Is that mm. going to help them to improve their capacity as a football player if you're stretching their hamstrings is that going to help their capacity to perform a resisted sit to stand or squat by stretching their tight hip flexor or performing soft tissue mobilization on the iliopsoas or should you think of something that incorporates more systems of the body into a movement by influencing their psychosocial factors their emotional buy-in the way that they're seeing the movement as opposed to some kind of static movement or some kind of static stretch. I mean, take two different things. Someone who has tight hip flexors, I mean, someone who's a football player, which is going to be more helpful having them lay with their with their leg laying or leg over the side of a table or performing a lunge that's actively stretching the hip flexor during each movement along with strengthening muscles, testing their aerobic capacity and getting some balance training into it. So I mean, it really kind of you asking yourself and having that internal reflection of being like, is this something I can do or is this something I should do?
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of that, you know, we talk about practice and we preach as physical therapists. A lot of that comes from the stuff that you do as uh, like, at least in my experience, a lot of those, those types of questions of, you know, whether I should do this or um, is it, it's more of a, why am I doing this? If I don't have a why behind the thing that I'm doing, I, I don't do it. Um, it's either something that there's a gap in my knowledge or I just don't feel it to be appropriate. So, I mean, that was something I learned very early on from some residents and fellowship level uh, clinicians I shadowed and worked under was, uh, you know, if I don't, if there's not a solid why behind what I'm doing. I have no business giving that as an intervention or an educational intervention whatsoever. Um, and I think that why, you know, it's obviously it's, it's important, but you get to that point by a lot of trial and error sometimes. And part of that, at least from my part, has been, especially for interventions, so let's just say therapeutic exercise or any type of strength training, aerobic training whatsoever, a lot of that has come from things that I've done in my own training in the gym, just essentially treating my own training like a lab. I'll try different sequences and positions and tempos and um, different intensities and volumes to see, you know, what type of effect it does, what type of change does it have on my training as a whole? And also, you know, what, muscle groups can I address with specific and very detailed changes in how I move and what I'm focusing on? Um, Because I think that's one big aspect of a lot of the exercises that we give in that they can become very effective or not effective at all through very small details that we often miss. Um, Like just an example of that is you know, the difference between like a lunge and a split squat. They look very, if you were to take somebody off the street, they look very similar to one another, but they're two very different exercises and two very different sets of muscle groups that you can address by changing specific angles and giving specific cues, whether it be internal or external cues. Um, and it's, it's something that I've tried to focus on more and more as being very detailed with my exercise prescription and being quite a stickler for some of the technique-driven focus.
1: So even building off of that, how have you made changes to monitor that exercise prescription? Because that's really a buzzword that for me is a struggle right now, even still with physical therapists that I've been learning and have mentored me, is how do you monitor that Intensity of exercise with a patient
0: Yeah, so I'll do it in a few different ways and it depends on the patients themselves so if it's more of a If it's somebody that's uh, More of an athletic individual or you know somebody rehabbing for like a sports injury um, I'll utilize RPE but not the traditional RPE so rating perceived exertion. I'll use um a modified version of that, which is uh, what is it? Um, repetitions and reserve. Uh, so yeah, it's, that's
1: the thing I use. Yeah,
0: so it's essentially the one. And again, this was not taught in PT school. We just learned, you know, RPE. Repetitions and reserve is essentially a somewhat of a different scale for those of you who may not use it or don't know. Um, that essentially looks at how many reps they feel they can do, plus whatever they have done in that original set or original um, exercise and it gives you a little bit better of a intensity or a little bit better of a measure of their intensity that they have. Um, and then I've also been playing around with, um, some velocity based training as well. Um, and look, I haven't really been able to play with that as much cause I don't have the equipment, but looking more into the research of it, I think it has a lot of, uh, promise or I know it's being utilized a lot more. I just don't have the, background in it as much right now but i think that's a really good objective way to look at it and i think there's a lot of research and just the theory of it and the research behind it is really good um but again it depends on the patient some patients who are just there for really just deconditioning like they just they can't like walk around the block i'll use heart rate and rpe because i'm not i'm not looking for as complicated of a measure or as complicated of of a intensity as I would. Um, And that works just fine, because I can see a very clear distinction between not only their progression, in physical therapy, but also between sessions within the session itself. And um, it allows me to mark their progress as they're going. And that's really what we use these type of outcome measures for not outcome measures, but these types of measures for is to really view that progress. What do you use?
1: Right. I totally – so for me, I think one of the big things too in coming back to your own experience in the gym is what am I looking for out of this set? And so when I'm starting, if you're, if you're going to warm up, so the idea is if you're going up to a 500-pound squat, my first set is not going to be a 500-pound squat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, so and that's something that a lot of people miss. So you have to kind of approach each set with a certain understanding of what am I trying to get out of this? This is going to be a warm up set. So for me, I want this to be a lighter load, but I want to perfect my form and I want to start to feel the load in the muscles that should be associated with this lift. So for a squat, I want to feel this in my glutes and, and, and quadriceps, the reps and reserve I think is, is excellent. But I mean, even for a warm up set, you're not, I mean, if I warm up with 135 before the 500, I mean, I don't really, I can't get it down to an estimate of oh, yeah. what, it should be. But by explaining to a patient and saying, this is a warm-up set, so I want you to start to feel which which muscles should be firing, and I want you to start to feel what the movement should essentially be like, a lot of patients will pick up on that very quickly in understanding, okay, so this is this is not what I'm doing for my working set. This is not something, this, this feels light to me. And even intrinsically, a lot of people will start to figure out that, okay, so this is my warm-up set, this is gonna be my second working set. And then from there, I'm gonna work on something that I feel like is tough on those muscles. So even by changing the load throughout a set, I mean, I think we fall into this productivity standard as a PT where it's like, okay, here's the green band, do three sets of 10. Mm-hmm. And, and that just kind of, it's frustrating because with that, you're not getting that understanding of I'm progressively loading this muscle to get to a working weight to stress the muscle create that breakdown, and then get a response to of hypertrophy to get the muscle stronger next time. And really, for me, it's, it's not so much a, a system of use. It's helping the patient understand what you should be feeling with each set. And it really only takes one session with a patient to explain the difference in what should be felt.
0: Yeah. I think setting those expectations, especially for You know, something like a warm up set or the difference between a warm up set or a warm up period versus the actual working set or the working that the work that we're going to be doing in rehab or for that session or whatnot is super important because you're focusing on different things. And that's why it's so important to have that why. Because if you don't have that why as a physical therapist, you can't explain that to somebody. You can't educate them on exactly what you want and exactly what you need and help so many things in the clinic in terms of not only achieving the actual results that you want to achieve with the individual, but it helps with things like sequencing your session and the education aspect is a huge part of what we do as physical therapists and as rehab professionals, because if they don't have a reason behind why they're doing what they're doing, there's, there's no reason for them to really be doing it at all. Um, Right. And then I think, you know, utilizing the, the education aspect for I want you to feel it in this particular muscle group or this is what we're targeting right now or this is you know this is what I want you to look for this is the goal for this particular set or this particular exercise it gives them something to look for because uh, a lot of times too we haven't necessarily talked about this yet is Many of the people that come into our gym, unless you're a high performance type of clinic, looking at professional elite athletes or something of that nature, which is very rare. I mean, even high school and college athletes, they're a different breed than most of the general population. Many of the people that walk in are not the people that are going to the gym five, six times a week and are really experts in many of the exercises that we're going to prescribe. So they have no idea what a good squat should feel like, or no idea what a good lunge should feel like. So I think that's super important. Those points that you brought up of making sure that you have that specific goal for every little aspect of that session that you're doing, making sure that they really understand, you know, this is the goal for this set or this rep or for this exercise in general.
1: Right. And that's kind of the thing you get from your own Intrinsic understanding of being in the gym is what is my goal for this this set? What is the set within the set for me here? And you, if you adjust the load, your goal can be different. If your goal is to squat 500 pounds for one rep, and you have 300 pounds on the bar, are you going to do one rep or are you going to do more? And your your goal immediately changes in order to build up to that capacity to be able to perform what you are goal in the end is and so there's all these things you learn in school that you can manipulate to try to help you get to that end goal but your your goals and your understanding and your inset changes are Mm. an ever-moving thing that in the end you hope come together to meet that goal and that's similar for you in the gym versus similar to our patients our patients goal so if you take a patient's goal And their goal is to be able to stand up from a chair without knee pain. So if you think about their capacity, their capacity to stand up from a chair without knee pain is an issue. So what does your mind go to immediately as a PT? You can change the height of the chair. You can change the the initiation of the movement from the, the patient. There's a bunch of different things that you can do to change that capacity to help with the load. But those different changes that you're making are going to have different goals because what you're trying to manipulate to get to the end goal of improving that capacity, you're not, you're trying to train different things and you're focusing on that part practice to bring together as a whole.
0: Yeah. And I think, like, you know, it's just, you get so many benefits from your own training. And learning how to manipulate those variables over time. Um, cause even, cause we can go through the full spectrum of a case like that, where you have an individual that goes from, you know, having that knee pain, staying up from a chair, you can have individuals of a higher athletic population, like an Olympic weightlifter. Hey, I have problems doing, you know, just a basic front squat. It's like, well, you know, they both have knee pain. But there's right. there's some differences there that we have to is There's address. a difference
1: in capacity, right. Yeah. So their capacity to perform a certain movement, are you going to give the person with the front squat, when they stand up from the chair, are you going to do the same thing that you would with someone who is having the same issue? You're yeah. totally right.
0: Yeah, like, I mean, I had a, a case like that in one of my first clinical rotations where it was exactly this situation. I had a uh, an older... Women who, was, who had some knee pain, just doing some general mobility stuff, like standing out from a chair and doing things of that nature. And then I had, on the other hand, an Olympic weightlifter who was front squatting like 400 pounds and was having some anterior knee pain. So, like the prescriptions that I'm giving, how I'm progressing, regressing, programming their interventions are very, very different. And there's also very different end goals you know, her goal is essentially to just have no pain doing ADLs and getting up and out of a chair. His goal is to be able to compete in a Olympic weightlifting competition or Olympic weightlifting meet and be at optimal peak performance. So those are two very different things that I have to address in two very different Mm -hmm. programs. And I feel like my, you know, my, again, I'm not a professional strength and conditioning coach but my experience in the gym and my experience working with athletes and other clinicians that have a strength and conditioning background much greater than my own was incredibly helpful in being able to look at those regressions and progressions for both of those cases um and it was funny because for some of them i used some of the same principles so yeah
1: uh, so i totally agree with you that was going to be my next thing yeah what kind of what kind of advice would you offer for someone who's not that strength and conditioning coach or not someone who is an avid gym goer, but more of just kind of a recreational lifter who does understand a little bit about the squat and does understand a little bit about the deadlift, but they have that patient who comes in and is squatting 405 pounds and having knee pain at the bottom of the squat. What are some kind of, Tips and help that you can offer to someone who is just kind of a recreational gym goer who understands it but is not as fully indulged and lives and breathes and, and wants to go to the gym 24 hours a day?
0: Yeah, so a few things. Number one is finding resources that will be able to provide you with more information and more training on that type of a situation or that type of intervention or that patient population. So, I mean, there's it can become very complex very quickly for some patients. So again, if I have a person, I believe he had a diagnosis of a, of a patellar tendinopathy and it was a chronic tendinopathy at that point. Um, so he was a little bit trickier because, you know, doing a Lorna quad at the edge of the table is not going to do it for him. So I remember I had him doing, we were doing box, box squats with, uh, let me see, uh, a three second eccentric tempo one pause one second pause at the bottom and then three seconds up um but we were doing it with some weight on them um and it's very very different from the other individual where like we were we were manipulating the other aspects that you were talking about like the height of the chair or maybe adding like a little bit of weight to the to the um To the lift or to standing up or even doing something like a wall sit or something of that nature. But I would say that for somebody who's not as well versed, and again, I'm not somebody that's incredibly well versed in strength and conditioning, it's something that I'm constantly working on is finding resources to educate yourself further on the topic. And then number two is understanding the patient a little bit better. So for somebody that is that, that athlete, I mean, there are certain principles that don't necessarily change from one athlete to another. You really have to understand the person as a whole, their goals. So, you know, are, do they want to get back to competition? Do they have no interest in competition? Do they just want to be able to lift on a regular basis? You have to understand what their goals are as an individual and who they are. And then that third aspect of, I'll say like a subjective, we're talking about that is their training regimen as a whole and paying attention to all of those details. Um, For the individual that I had, his biggest thing was that he had, he started adding plyometrics to Olympic weightlifts. And that's what really started to bother his knee quite a bit. Um, and at that point, again, I didn't have much knowledge of Olympic weightlifting or anything of that nature. I feel I had a good base, but just those few things told me a lot about what I was going to address with him. And I mean, some resources for anybody who's looking for strength and conditioning resources that really tie it into rehabilitation very nicely. Um, I have a few. Um, one is Dr. John Rusin, he's very, very well-known strength and conditioning coach um he's also a physical therapist so he he's on instagram and you can find him post videos all the time about fantastic interventions that he utilizes there's also continuing education courses that i feel really good um institute of clinical excellence with the barbell physio has one of them he does basically um it's called Uh, clinical management of the fitness athlete. And they have online courses, in-person courses. I'm taking the in-person course in November, I believe. Um, And they do a very nice job of going over everything. And there's so many more um, that I don't have time to say, but really finding those resources can be very, very helpful. Um, So, I mean, that's some of the advice I would give to somebody that's not necessarily too well-versed in the strength and conditioning realm.
1: Right. So I think one of the biggest things too to help with that is just keeping in mind this understanding that you having confidence in what you know and what you understand as a PT. So even if you are a little bit um, intimidated by the fact that there's someone coming in here that can move a monstrous amount of weight, just think, okay, so this person is telling me They can squat 405, but when they get to 90 degrees, it starts to be painful. What can we manipulate as PTs to try to make it non-painful? So 90 degrees is right where it starts to hurt. How do you feel at 75? How do you feel at 80? The front squat is hurting you for 405. How does a back squat feel? Can you do it on one leg? Are you okay to narrow your base of support? There's a lot of things that you can kind of lean on being a PT and be an understanding just the background of how you can change variables in exercise that can have a a great outcome in helping someone along the way. None of that really includes lying on your back and doing open-chain exercise with an ankle weight
0: on. Yeah.
1: But you you need to still be able to press the issue and provide something intense enough that it's going to cause tissue change. But there are more ways than you think – That you are able to influence a lift like that.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think the point of of about the point that you brought up about just having confidence in your pre-existing skill set—you have to have that because there's going to be so many patients, and even me as a—I mean, as an as a younger clinician, I'll have these on a regular basis. So many people that will walk in or that I'll encounter as a as a patient where like kind of stuck on something or I, you know, I need some more knowledge or I don't necessarily have everything that I need to address it, you know, in the perfect fashion, but there's still a lot that I can do to take a look, give a very solid assessment, give a very solid exercise prescription and really just focusing on the basics of strength and conditioning or the basics of strength programming, if you will. Um, and that can even come down to something as simple as like your rep scheme and your, your reps and sets scheme, you know, very rarely should you be giving, th- I mean, three set. We, we say three sets of 10 all the time. I very rarely give three sets of 10 to anybody now. Right. Um, unless we're doing some type of mobility work. Like I'll give it for that. But if we're talking about strength, like true, absolute strength, again, we're talking like five, six reps.
1: Mm-hmm. You had uh, mentioned the uh, you had mentioned the tempo yeah. lifts a little bit earlier. That's something I really am doing a little bit more, trying to understand and trying to implement. How have you been implementing that into what you've been doing? So I'm a huge fan of the tempo sets and the tempo exercises.
0: Yeah. So for especially, I find it works especially well for um, especially individuals that have, you know, their main complaint is jumping. Or some type of explosive exercise like that. So when we talk about doing a tempo, like um, you know, uh, it can be anything. It can be three seconds, one second pause at the bottom, and three seconds up. But it does a few different things. It maximizes the length under tension, or sorry, time under tension, um, which is a huge aspect for any type of muscle development and um, really hypertrophy. And then number two, if you have somebody that is actively painful in that movement or in that position, having that little pause at the bottom takes away the elastic component of the tendon. So instead of utilizing essentially like a rebound effect, like when you come down to the bottom of a squat, so you see the people that will just go up and down like a spring in the squat position, um, part of that that they're utilizing is that elastic component of tendon or of the muscle fiber. But if you do a pause squat or a box squat, it takes that away and really forces you to use that muscle in its hole, but it doesn't necessarily require a very quick stretch or not necessarily a violent movement, but a somewhat aggravating movement, um, to that joint or to that tendon. And I use it a lot for, um, like post-op as well it just teaches you a lot more about controlling the movement number one it will help with that time under tension relationship so i get a kind of appropriate proprioceptive feedback i get that strength improvement you know obviously if i do it for the right number of sets and things of that nature and then also just um body control so when they're talking about doing those uh, those tempos, it allows me to manipulate like how f- far down to the like the depth of the movement. I would say so going into a specific depth of the squat or depth of a lunge, because there'll be certain depths where it's it's too painful for them to be doing it, and I start to see the quality go down in their overall movement, and that to me are red flags. Like once, not necessarily pain. But once I start to see the quality of the movement go down, that's somewhat concerning. Not concerning, but I know I have to back off a little bit. Um, But I use them all the time for a lot of different patients uh, just because I think it's it's more of like a conjugate strength training and that it just addresses so many different things at once. I think it's very beneficial and it can be done anywhere.
1: Right. Yeah, so that I love the tempos and something I've been utilizing a lot more since I've been home during the quarantine is uh, resistance bands in different directions. So if mm-hmm. you're trying to get a certain muscle group to fire or fire more efficiently or to even just build strength, resistance bands are great for just wrapping around a barbell or some kind of other res- um, weight in order to try to initiate a a muscle group so for me i've been using them a lot to train the deadlift so i've been doing a lot of uh, rack deadlifts with a resistance band in the front to promote uh, with a force moving into flexion requiring me to use shoulder extension so i can initiate my lats and throughout the movement to provide stability with the deadlift so there's a lot of different ways that you can as you play around and as you get more creative with your exercise in the gym, you can use these a lot more for patients. So, I mean, think about it. How many different patients could benefit from lower trap and lat strengthening in that external moment? And for me, that's something that'll be a huge implementation into what I do moving forward with patients in just picking up objects. I mean, picking up an object from the ground, rather it's very hard to pick up an object that has a force that's moving the object in some other direction to improve on that stability than anything else. And it also turns even turning interventions into a game. I mean, placing asking someone to do something in a certain amount of time or having um, having uh, locations or markers that someone needs to hit with a foot during stability, any kind of, any kind of implementation of that stuff is just, you're going to get such more buy-in from your patients than you would with anything else that is just kind of not challenging enough. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that having it, number one, being challenging. And then again, we kind of circle back to that. They have to know why they're doing it. But if I don't, if I'm just going through an exercise mindlessly and I don't have a goal behind it and I don't know why I'm doing it, um, and this changes from population to population, but you know, one of the let's bring it back to PT school, one of the <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the principles of neuroplasticity is salience, it has to be important yeah. to the person. And that applies for everybody, right? It has to be important for them. So it's not, you know, if we're talking about somewhat of a stereotypical example we're doing this deadlift, not so you can deadlift, but so you can pick up a laundry basket or so you can pick up your, your child or so you can pick up right. a ball. You have to make it salient to the person. But I think all of this comes in that, you know, everything that we discussed is that getting yourself to do these exercises and getting yourself to do some form of physical fitness and really practicing what you preach is so important because it helps every single aspect of this.
1: Right. If you can't make it fun for yourself, do you think it's going to be fun for the
0: patient? Oh, yeah. No, not at all. I've, right. I've had yeah I've had those days where I just just don't want to do it. But You just don't want to be in the gym.
1: I yeah. everybody has those. I mean, world-class powerlifters talk about it, how it's – for them, it, it becomes a game. It's like, what in this world can keep me from going to the gym, but can I find my way to get over this difficulty to be there? Mm-hmm. And for that, I mean, a lot of people ask. They're like, how do you – get to the gym after working a 10-hour day or something like that. And it, it really is just your approach to difficult. It's like all of these things and all of these external factors are trying to ruin my day and trying to ruin my workout. But my mental well-being will overcome these and my will to perform this will prevail in the end. And that's the mentality we want our patients to have. It's like if you yep. give someone a home exercise program and they say, oh, I didn't have time to do it. And you get frustrated. Well, if you go ahead and do the same thing and you just worked a long day and go home and it's much easier to sit on the couch, I mean, you're kind of giving into those temptations rather than changing your approach to difficult and overcoming what the world is presenting to stop you from doing what you need to do to get to your goals.
0: Yeah, 100%. So we are got about two minutes left. So before we leave, I want to say thank you, first and foremost, for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. I, I had a lot of fun doing this. I thought it was a good discussion. Yeah. It's good to see you again. Um, good to see but, you too. Yeah. But before we leave, tell people where they can find you on social media and whatnot and how they can contact you if, you have, if they have any questions or ever want to reach out to you.
1: So I'm on Instagram. You can find me by my name, Eric Horox. uh E R I C H O R R O X. Any questions, you can just shoot me. An inbox or an email at ethorox at com. all
0: right man all Sounds right thank good. you for having
1: me on zach it was a great discussion i think yeah. uh happy to be entering the world and going into this profession with allies like yourself and like those that are around us that are trying to leave the place a little bit better than we came in
0: yeah and same to you my friend same to you well again, it was it was good seeing you. It was good talking to you. Um, and hopefully we can do this again sometime.
1: Definitely. All right, have a good one.
0: All right, man.